We're finishing chapter 12 of the Gospel of Luke this morning. So if you will, go ahead and turn that way uh, in your Bible, if it's paper, or tap that way if you're using some other device of some sort. Uh, Last week, we were listening to the Lord Jesus uh, as he spoke in these small parables, right, about his future return, about the judgment that's going to come at that time. And and we learned uh, of two servants there at the very end, right, the unfaithful one who will be punished upon the return of the master. And we also learned about the servant who, when the master returns, finds him being faithful and the blessings that he will be blessed with greatly. Today, uh, we're moving right from that into this next section. There's no real pause in Jesus's statement. It's just one continuous conversation. Uh, And today we're going to look at it in three different sections that make up a total of, of 10 verses. Uh, And so we're going to read each section as we get to it, because if you're anything like me, you're going to forget, you know, the next two sections while we're going over the first one and whatnot. So uh, anyway, turn to Luke. It'll be in Luke chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 49. Follow along as I read. This is Jesus speaking from the start. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to bring to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, enlighten and sharpen our minds this morning. And we ask that you'd soften our hearts so that we might be engaged and understand your word. And also that we might receive it and so be changed by your word this morning. It's in Jesus', Jesus name we pray. Amen. So there are a lot of words that have come out of the mouth of Jesus that are widely beloved by both those within the church and those just in the wider culture outside the church. Uh, Things like the golden rule in in Luke 6.31 that we saw a while back, right? Do unto others as you would have them do to you. People love that. Or or his command in Matthew 5.44 to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Or or when Jesus in John 8, 7 confronts the men who are ready to stone the woman who's caught in adultery. And he he says to them, let let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Those are beloved words of our Lord. But what we find coming out of the lips of our Lord here at the end of Luke 12. These are not the sort of statements that we're going to have plastered on our wall somewhere. These are not the sort of things that you, you find in some artsy Instagram post put together. Right? Jesus says here, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. These, these are words that if Jesus had a public relations firm, they'd ask him, you know, Jesus, you need to soften that a little bit. You know, something along the lines of like, you know, fire can be comfy. Maybe say I bring comfy to the earth, right? Do I bring comfy to the earth? Only Stucky laughs at these things. I appreciate you, Stucky. Right? Jesus doesn't soften it at all, though. Not even a little bit, right? And and here's the thing. Fire in Scripture, when we see this theme of fire, uh, it's a way of referring to God's judgment being poured out. 
In, in Isaiah 66, 16, where the, where the prophet there is speaking, the prophet Isaiah, and he says, For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment. And in Numbers 16, during Korah's rebellion, uh, the men who are, we were told that they, did, they despised the Lord, those men are literally consumed by fire. And, and, and we're told there by the author that, that this is the Lord's judgment upon them. Literally fire in that sense. Now, fire does two things. It doesn't just, well, it does consume, but it accomplishes two things. It consumes some things and it purifies other things that make it through the fire. When, when gold is, is put through the fire, it, all that's not gold is burned up so that what remains is just an absolute pure gold. That's what's left. And so, uh, you know, Jesus is here talking, though, about this judgment, and he's going to bring the, the fire of judgment. And he says here that he wishes it has already come, right? That it's already kindled, that it's already going about. That's a pretty intense statement of our Lord right there. The next one is equally intense. You see it there in verse 50. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress, distress until it is accomplished. Now, Jesus is not talking about his water baptism in the Jordan, right? That's already happened. That's in the past. Uh, He's not at some Baptist summer camp where he's getting baptized for the 10th time. That's not the situation here. I was Baptist. I can make that joke. Um, For some reason, you're exempt as long as it was you at one point. Uh, What he means here by baptism is, is that God's judgment, right? The suffering, all the things that come with it are going to be poured out upon him. Now, you you remember the story, maybe you remember, when I tell it, you might remember it, the story in Mark 10, there's two brothers uh, who are also two disciples of of the twelve. These are the ones that have the WWE kind of name, right, the Sons of Thunder, James and John. Uh, These brothers come to him and they ask him, "Will, will you allow us, when you come in glory, when you are sitting on the throne and are in power, that we can sit to your right hand and your left hand because those are places of, of prestige is what they're thinking. They're, they're, they're picturing Jesus, right, on an earthly throne. And, and Jesus responds to them in Mark 10, 38, saying this, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? Right? A future thing he's pointing to. And, and in their confidence, you know, confident ignorance, and this is one of the things I love about James and John, you know, they tell him basically, yep, we can do that. We're good, as long as we can sit to the left and right. And and Jesus says to him, you know, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And, And so do you know what Jesus is talking about by baptism then? He's talking about suffering. He's talking about persecution. He's talking about his his death finally. And Jesus, not surprising to any of us, is absolutely right about James and John. They are later going to suffer and die for the gospel that they are proclaiming, for the gospel that they believe in. You see, the baptism of of Jesus, though, is is even more than than that. It's ultimately upon the cross as he's crucified when, when the wrath of God's judgment is poured out upon Jesus, right? Judgment that you and I have earned, not Jesus. That we've earned with our own sin. It's poured out on Jesus, who is innocent. And, and what's astonishing here, really, is, is that little phrase that comes afterwards, how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Right? He, he's distressed, and it's not like you and I tend to think of it as of panic and concern right here, but, but rather that Jesus' heart is, is so set on completing the mission, finishing the work of redemption that he has come into the world, into flesh, to, you know, to actually accomplish 
Well, what we see here is that, that Jesus goes to the cross willingly, absolutely willingly. He, he's not forced by the Father or the Holy Spirit or anyone else. He does it on his own free choice. And, and it's all accomplished when, as John 19.30 tells us the last words of Jesus, you know what they are? It is finished. That, that's when that's accomplished. That's what he's looking forward to in, in this moment. And, and, and so Jesus comes to bring fire and he awaits baptism of judgment. And, and then he asks that most peculiar question, right? It's, it's rhetorical when he says that, do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? And, and you can almost imagine the, the answers that immediately spark through the minds of the disciples when they hear that. Because, you know, they're probably thinking, well, actually, yeah. That's exactly what we thought you came to bring. It is, right? If you're the Messiah that we've been waiting for, we are expecting you to bring peace on earth. It's, you know, you, you think of the well-known prophecy in Isaiah 9-6, right? We read it around Christmas time. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And what's the last one? Prince of Peace. Or when John the Baptist, uh, when his dad, rather, is, is prophesying in Luke 179. We saw that a long time ago now. And, and he says Jesus is going to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's something that Jesus is going to do. Or, or as Jesus himself says in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I'll give you one more. As, uh, as Peter states while preaching later in Acts 10, 36, there is good news of peace through Jesus Christ. And we get this all the time, this connection of Jesus and peace, Jesus and peace. Uh, and the general expectation of, of most, most of the Jews at this time was when the Messiah comes, he's going to bring about peace because he's going to be a military leader and he's going to just destroy all of our enemies. And once the enemies are gone, we're just going to live in peace. That's their image of what the Messiah is going to be. They're wrong, but that's their image. At least they're wrong at that point in history. Um, that's the image. And, and so, yeah, they probably thought that Jesus had come to bring peace on earth. There's one more verse I want that you might be thinking of. Uh, you know the song the angels sing, right? Right after uh, Jesus is born to the shepherds, they go out there. Uh, and in Luke 2.14, you can actually turn back there real quick. It should just be a few pages to your left. Many months in preaching, but just a few pages to your left. Uh, this is the source text for that Christmas song. It came upon a midnight clear. Do you remember it? Peace on earth, and how's it go? Goodwill towards men, right? Peace on earth, goodwills to men. But that's not what you see in your Bible. If you're at Luke 2.14, provided you don't have a King James Bible in front of you, uh, you're not going to see that, right? So there's a whole reason why, and you're probably wondering that. You can go look it up. It's not pertinent to what we're doing today. Uh, but I want you to see here, though, that what I do want you to see is that the, the peace on earth is qualified. It's not, it's not peace on earth for everyone like we sing in the song. But the angels actually sing this, on earth peace, among those with whom he is pleased. And so there's this division even built into that statement that they're singing between those with whom God is well pleased and well, those with whom he's not well pleased. And, and so then, you know, back in our passage then, you can turn back to wherever we are, Luke 10, Luke 12. Um, I should know that. Luke 12, he, he, he's going to answer his own question. Right? It's rhetorical, but he goes on. Do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. And that's not what we want him to say, is it? It's not. Right? Jesus then came to bring division on earth? Is that what he's saying? Does that sound right to, to any of you? 
Does that not contradict Hebrews 12, 14, where we're told, you know, strive for peace with everyone? Or in Romans 12, 18, where we're told, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. And here's the deal. It's, it's not contradictory. We'll, we'll see why in a minute. But, well, it's not contradictory because, because Jesus comes to bring peace, but it's not peace between all people. He comes to bring peace between you, his children, his people, and, and God. Everyone who's justified by, by faith in Jesus Christ. He, he does not come to bring peace between people with each other. And in both Hebrews 10 or Hebrews 12 and Romans 12, those things we read a minute ago, the, the statements are actually qualified there, aren't they? These are things we're to strive for, right? It's the first one. And these are things that, if possible, we're to do. Meaning you don't go out and just make war with people. There are things we strive for, but that's not the reason that Jesus comes. Now, unity for unity's sake is one of our culture's highest virtues in, in this era that we live in. It's just unity because, you know, because unity, uh, world peace, the coexist bumper sticker, and so on and so on. We're just uh, obsessed with this idea of unity, and we have no idea what it means. Uh, however, the, the, the theme of unity that we see in the scriptures, again, it's not the world peace sort of unity, but it's, it's unity among God's people. When, when he prays for his church in John 17, it's unity uh, among his people, all those who make up the church. And, and here's the deal. Belonging to one group usually leads to not belonging to another group. You've all experienced this. Um, this, this last Tuesday, as I walked through the door of, of RUF, I was asked, what's your favorite Christmas movie? I don't know why I was asked that in February, but I was. And they take it and they write it on your, your name tag as a way of kind of an icebreaker. And, and my immediate response was, Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. And, and immediately that created a division, right? I just said the statement, uh, Jonathan Moore, who's in here somewhere, Jonathan Moore said something like, you have got to be kidding me. And then he threw up his hands and walked away and was just done with me forever. Um, and there's always been dividing lines. Like, that's a ridiculous one. It is a ridiculous one, by the way. But there have always been these dividing lines that, we, that we've seen in the history of redemption throughout the scriptures. Like, Noah's Ark. We don't like to think of it this way. We're always focused on Noah and his salvation through the Ark, right? Uh, but at the Ark, you're either with Noah, right? At peace with God on the Ark and, and safe in the hands of the Lord. Or you're outside that door drowning in, in judgment, right? There's that division, even at that point. So today, the whole world is actually divided into these, these two categories, not whether it's a Christmas movie or not, but something much more important. Uh, you know, divided into these categories of those who receive the message and the person of Jesus Christ and, and those who reject him. And those are straight categories. Everyone's in one or the other. And, and so in one sense, <clears throat> Jesus does come to bring peace. Like Romans 5.1 tells us, uh, we, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> but, like, <clears throat> but like Jesus says in our passage, he did not come to bring peace on earth in the wider sense, in the sense that we hear it culturally all the time. Now, here's the basic axiom of this passage. That's a big word I just learned this week. Uh, it's just the accepted view of something, I guess, is the simple version of it. Uh, and here's the axiom. Peace with God leads to division from others. It doesn't necessarily mean violence. It's not saying you are now, because you are separated from people, that you can go and treat them horribly. You can't. You're supposed to love your enemies. You know that. But it naturally will create division. 
And the scriptures are full of division imagery. We are either children of God or we're enemies of God. We are either, uh, as Jesus says in Matthew 25, 31 through 33, that we are either sheep, right, believers, or goats, unbelievers. Or as 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 through 9 says, we, we belong to the light while others walk in darkness. And uh, one Craig mentioned to me this morning coming in, which I had not thought of, we are, we are either chaff, chafe. I can't do it. Chaff. Uh, chaff or wheat. Another division that these, these image within Scripture of talking about this division. I will never get that. I'm convinced of it. Um, now, our, our love for God and his kingdom must be our strongest loyalty. It must be our highest priority. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's, <clears throat> he's explaining what happens when, when we are united to Christ, when we're in the church, when our faith's in Jesus, and, and it causes division even over human relationships. And so we begin to wonder what, what sort of divisions <clears throat> can we expect from following Christ? Well, in some places in the world, not here, but some places in the world, we can expect our lives to be threatened by radical Muslims or totalitarian governments or other sorts, uh, other groups that just hate Christians because they love Jesus. The, the, the example Jesus gives here is within the family. Every one of these is within the family. When, when someone in a non-Christian family comes to faith, we, we can expect that to disrupt things. Right? In some way or another. I, I actually had a, a friend in college. I think I've shared this with you before. But uh, he was an India, Indian from India. Shouldn't have to qualify that. Um, and, and when he came to, to love Jesus, to believe the gospel, his own family actually disowned him. It was a threat beforehand. They went through with it. He was, they no longer paid for his college. They no longer helped him with rent. He was no longer welcome back at the family home at, at, uh, during Christmas or spring break or, or uh, summer break. This was nearly 20 years ago, and only in, in recent years has there been any reconciliation uh, of just willing to have conversations even. See, our, our faith in Jesus might also just make things awkward, right? That's more likely the case that we find uh, in our own lives. You ever, you ever been with unbelieving family uh, members at Christmas and you want to go to a Christmas Eve service? And they have no interest in it. It's this awkward thing of uh, they're annoyed because you want to go to church that night. They want to have their, uh, their meal at some time. And they can't understand why, why don't you just skip? Why don't you just not so you can hang out with us? And again, it's just little awkward things like that. I, I've actually heard people share stories with me of unbelieving parents who are angry at their children because they're going into missions, Right? Either because on one level they're thinking, I just paid for your college education, which is so expensive, and you're so gifted at this area, whatever it might be, and you're going to absolutely waste it by just going to some foreign country to talk about Jesus. And so they're angry. Or, or, or they're, they're confused and, and frustrated that, that they would think their child would foolishly go to some country where it's dangerous, when why don't you just stay here, right? It's people need Jesus here. That's usually the statement you'll hear. And so there is that division that happens. Uh, also, while there are you know, churches in town who believe the word of God and proclaim the gospel, and we are so thankful for them and we can have unity with them, there, there are other groups in town who call themselves churches who we just cannot have unity with. We simply can't because they've abandoned the gospel at the most basic level even. And finally, you've, you've probably felt the separation already. The division that comes from this. When people ridicule your biblical convictions, right, as either simple, old-fashioned, 
maybe even to the point of labeling you as hateful because of something you believe from scriptures. And you see, at the return of Jesus, after the judgment, there will come a time for peace on earth. Until then, we, we have union with Christ. We, we have union with our fellow believers. And, and we learn how to love those who we are divided from because of the gospel. We learn how to love enemies and neighbors and family and, and those that we long to, be, to have union with as they come to faith. But we just don't until then. So then, let's move on to our second section here. Again, it's the same thing happening. Uh, take note of how the, the, the audience or who he's talking to changes here. We're going to begin uh, verse 54 here. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, There will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites! You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but... Why do you not know how to interpret this present time or the present time? And again, did you notice the, the change of audience, right? He's no longer talking to his disciples. He's, he's talking to the wider audience whom he refers to as hypocrites. Uh, again, if he had a PR firm, they would not appreciate that. Uh, let's reword that, Jesus. He doesn't. Uh, anyway, when he says hypocrites here, it's not in the sense that we tend to think of it. When we think of hypocrites, it's when you say one thing and you do something different. That's usually what we mean. Uh, but rather, they were hypocrites because they acted like they understood the world. They acted like they could interpret things and, and what was important. While the, the truth was, was that they had no clue of, of the very important things. No ability to uh, actually interpret spiritual things happening right in front of them. And so it's all based on this, this you know, old-fashioned, there I am using the word now, uh, weather forecasting. But, you know, it's not very sophisticated at this time. It sounds like it's just as accurate as it ever was. Uh, you, you know, here living, you know, in Kansas, how often do we hear snows coming and you wait for it and nothing shows up or the opposite? Now, to be fair, predicting the weather in Kansas is not easy, I've learned. In Houston, they would always nail it. They're like, it's going to be humid and hot. You wake up, it's humid and hot, and you're like, nailed it every time. Anyway, you know, forecasting in Israel was on the, the easier side of things to do. Uh, the west wind meant that there was rain because it was coming from the Mediterranean. That's where the water was coming from the ocean, right? The south wind meant it was coming, uh, it's going to be hot because it was coming from the desert. That's the way it is. It's, it's kind of like when we go outside and we feel wind from the north and it smells like cow manure. You know, oh, cold air is coming. Why? Because it's coming really quickly and bringing that nasty smell with it. Um, so anyway, Jesus' point is that they, these people are smart. They're, they're intellectually Wise, Like they really are, but they're spiritually empty. They, they don't see the obvious sign showing that God is at work among them, even that God is actually among them. And they should, they should be able to interpret, interpret that Jesus is the Messiah by his teaching, by his miracles, but, but uh, you know, all that he's accomplished, but they don't. And that's where the source of this, this statement of Jesus, you know, calling them hypocrites. Now, if you're with us today and, and, and you're not a Christian one, I'm glad you're here. This is where you need to be, uh, like, truly. But I also want to challenge you on a passage like this because you, you, you might know a lot about the world. You might be blessed intellectually just beyond most of your peers. But don't, don't let that keep you from finding an answer to the most fundamental question in the history of the world that ever, everyone actually has to ask. How, how can I, a sinner, be made right with, with a holy and just God? That, that's the bigger question. 
And so whatever intellectual questions you're able to answer about any topic, any, any subject in, in the academic world, you've got to be able to see these things. It, it, it's really amazing how many other questions men and women seek answers to before that one, knowing that the day is coming, you must know how to answer that. Now, don't neglect to see who Jesus is, is what that's about, right? And so then in verse 56, when, when Jesus asked this question, why do you know how to, uh, uh, why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And, and the present time there, it's a unique word for Greek. It's not like, you know, two o'clock or what day it is. It's, it's this idea of um, that there's some sort of opportunity available for a limited amount of time, okay? It's, it's like Taco Bell's nacho fries, right? They're available for a limited amount of time. Now's the time to get it. They won't be available later. Or, or the 95 cents frozen custard at Freddy's tip. That's only for two more days. Um, so now is the time to go get them. It's, it's an opportunity op- uh, time at this point. And of course, uh, Jesus means now is the time to find salvation in him. That's what this whole parable that he's really telling, not parable here, but the story that he's telling. And, and, and that's what sparks in Jesus' mind this, this last parable that makes up this last section. You've got to understand, it's, it, it's a parable that actually comes out of this section we just, we just studied. Now let's, let's read that and we'll see why. So beginning in verse 57 then. To the end of the chapter. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Now let me reword that for you a little bit. Suppose uh, you owe money to Farmer Billy just because that sounds like a good farmer name. Uh, so you owe, you owe Farmer Billy money because you borrowed his donkey and you forgot to feed it. Oops. And it died, right, eventually. So, so that's why you owe money. And so uh, you and Billy, Farmer Billy, you go to the magistrate, a, a government official, and the official then sends you to the judge, and, and the judge decides you are guilty. You have killed this man's donkey. You're responsible for it. And he sentences you to prison and says you've got to pay back all the money so you can buy a brand new 2020 donkey model, uh, the full price of it, before you're allowed to get out of prison. I'm pretty sure that's how it works. Is that right? That's how farm stuff works? All right. So sometimes it makes absolute perfect sense that for a defendant to go through the whole legal process. That's why it's there, right? It only makes sense, though, if the defendant knows, one, you are innocent. Then it makes perfect sense to go to it, through it. That is not the case here. The, the defendant in this parable knows he is guilty. That's the whole point of how this all works out. And so if you know that you're going to be found guilty, it would make so much sense to settle outside of court, to be reconciled with Farmer Billy before going to the magistrate. Because if you settle out of court, it's, it's going to go a lot better for you. You know, if you get to the judge, you're going to be put in prison. And, and kids, you know this. You do this already. I know. I, I know my children do. It's not to throw you under the bus, but to throw you under the bus. Uh, you take something from your sister and she says, I'm telling mom. Right? What's the first thing you do? You try to reconcile right then. No, don't go to mom. Don't, uh, here, have it back. Let's have two of them. Whatever it might be. There's, there's some way you're trying to reconcile because you know by the time they get to mom, things are going to get a lot worse for you. And you see, on, on some level, what, what Jesus is talking about is practical, just like kids put it to use, just like we put it to use, right? It, it's practical. But, but remember, this is the parable which tells us that there's something spiritual in this story that we're supposed to be learning from it. And, and the point is that we must reconcile with God before it's too late. 
before your life is over and you must appear in the cosmic court of the Lord on judgment day. And so Jesus is making this point to the crowds, right? The same people he's just called hypocrites. Uh, and he's making that point to, to you and I and anyone who, uh, who, everyone on the planet really, right? We are guilty of violating God's law and therefore seek to be reconciled. We, we are guilty. And that means that if, if God punishes us, it will be just, right? Justice will be served because we really did the crime. In other words, do you you believe God when he says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned, all, every single one of them? And just before that section, right, in in Romans 3, uh, 10 through 19, there's this beautiful rant, if you can have a beautiful rant, uh, by Paul on on just the depth of our sin of all people. And it's wonderful. Go read it sometime. Uh, And then in Romans 3.20, though, we read this. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, you're a sinner. There's no way of you doing this right. That's not the way you're going to be declared innocent. You can't be declared innocent. You are a sinner. And so, sure, maybe you're not the worst sinner you know in the world, right? Someone's always like, well, Hitler's worse than me, uh, right? But you are a sinner nonetheless and therefore guilty. And, And knowing that is the first step to actually seeking reconciliation, uh, when I was in, in college, I was reading my Bible out at a Sweet Eugene's at the coffee shop in College Station, Texas. And, and some stranger came up and handed me a tape. You college students don't even know what this is. A cassette tape. Um, there were crazy days, people handing out tapes. Uh, and, and it had written on the side of it, Hell's Best Kept Secret. And it was weird even in our era, right? So I took this tape and I stuck it to my yellow Walkman later that day. Uh, and, and listen to it, and it was this critique on how we often share the gospel, uh, that, that we start with this, you know, um, Jesus died to pay for your sins, that we sometimes begin telling people about Jesus that way. And, and in this tape, he says, he, he suggests that we, we start in a different place, that we start by teaching people first that they're sinful and deserve the punishment of hell. And, uh, you know, whoever's talking on this tape, I can't remember who it was, says that when we, when we start with that solution, it's, it's like telling a stranger, or, or the first way we do it. The way we tend to do it is this. We, we say, I have good news for you. Your speeding ticket, your, your driving ticket ha- has been paid in full. And the stranger looks back at you and he's thinking, but I don't have a speeding ticket. So I don't care what you think's been paid. Like there's no interest in anything you have to say because they simply don't believe they have a speeding ticket. And, and he said, we're better off, you know, something along these lines, showing them a video and asking, is, is this your car in the video? And is, is that you driving the car 130 miles through that school zone? Right? And, and, and here's a record of the ticket actually being issued to you. Right? All these things to show you are, are guilty. And, and once he knows the truth is that, in fact, he does owe $2,000 and is guilty, suddenly the, suddenly the news that, that, that your ticket might be paid in full, that, that's of real interest. Really? Someone will pay this? We see, we're, we're, we're guilty. And, and this is things we don't like to talk about, but we are guilty and we deserve the punishment of hell. That's justice. Didicus Stella, a guy in the 1600s, said of this passage, he said, The wicked shall be placed in hell until they pay their debt to the uttermost farthing. And as they can never pay it, it is certain that they will be there for all of eternity. You see, we don't want our case to go to court. And in the grace of God, we, we have an advocate. Our, our triune God is our advocate. Uh, in other words, that the judge of the most supreme court in all of existence 
is also willing to be our Savior. You see, the legal remedy for us is Jesus. We, we can be reconciled with God through Jesus Christ, and only then can we lay down at night in peace without fear of, of coming judgment. And so Jesus' whole point in this parable is, is don't wait, don't delay, don't, don't put off till sometime later in your life. Right? The, the, the offer is available now while you are still alive, while your heart is beating and your lungs are breathing. It's, you know, but, but like nacho fries, it's not going to be around forever. Now's the time. And, and so seek to be reconciled with God before it's too late. And, and so then the very personal and very pertinent question that arises here is, have you, guilty sinner, settled your case with God? Because it's far, far better for you to settle now through, through Christ and the cross and the resurrection than it will be to later, later stand before the judge condemned because you know you're guilty. And if you're unsure about that, what that means, if that's still too vague, come talk to me afterwards. Or if you don't have time, just contact me this week. We'll, this is, I will stop anything to come have this conversation with you. So I, I want to finish our time here with these other words of Jesus our Lord who so clearly marks the division of all people but while offering hope of reconciliation. They're from John 5, verse 24. And Jesus here says this. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we long for peace with others, especially family members. But Lord, the Holy Spirit has so worked in our hearts that we have a greater desire to have peace with you. You who are holy. You who are a father to us forever. We thank you for that new family, Lord. We ask you to give us wisdom to seek peace with others and and yet to be so contented in you that we will value peace with you more than anything else. Lord, may we find that peace long before our day in court. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.